topical studies. Each of those keywords can become a topical study for you. And there's a standard principles of how you execute doing a, to a topical study. All right, let's look at that. Topical studies here. Topical study is done when a subject is mentioned in your text without much or without at least not very much expounding on it, right? Um, for instance, giving is one of them. We do have giving and he mentions, he spends quite a bit of time thanking them for their giving, but he doesn't really talk about the principles of giving, does he? Not in this text. He talks about kind of the result of their giving toward him personally and how he's thankful for it. So what, what you're going to do with a a subject like giving in this particular book, you're going to take that and you're going to try to draw in more insights about that subject matter on the whole so that you have a better developed doctrinal understanding on the whole about what God wants you to know about the subject of giving. Why is it important? How am I to do it? When am I to do it? You know, what, what is the outcome of the, the subject of giving for me personally in the here and now and maybe also in the eternity? And so when doing a topical study, here are some, basically, these are the simple steps or the pattern that you're going to follow. Number one, you start by identifying your subject in the immediate text, right? So you look in the, the immediate verses that you're at and you say, what do I learn right here in chapter four in these verses from, say, verse 11 to the end of the chapter? What do I learn right here about the subject of giving? So you're going to make a, yourself a list. You're going to list the basic principles of giving and, then, and make that uh, basically a definition from the immediate text. That's the first thing. The second thing you're going to do it, to develop your understanding of that word is to do a word study. That's to go back to the original language and try to develop that. Now, sometimes it's beneficial, sometimes it's not. Um, but you won't know until you've gone in and done the study. That's the only way you find out whether or not you've actually benefit from uh, the word study itself. The other thing is in this particular uh, one, we had one, for instance, where we, we were looking at the things that had pertained to the mind dwell on these things and she asked us to look up the word dwell on rather than the word mind we looked up the word dwell on and then that helped us to develop our understanding about the mind what we're to dwell on for the purpose of our mind and our thinking so do that word study this the third thing then you do is you try to develop your your uh, knowledge from the book on the whole so now you're going to step out of just chapter 4. You're going to go all the way back to the beginning of your chapter. You're in the book that you're in, and you're going to look to see what more is there. You would be so surprised at how often I actually answer my questions that I had hanging about a subject just by doing that step. Going back and looking specifically for that subject with that in my mind, so it's a deliberate reading of the book, from the perspective of that subject. What am I learning about that subject? And as I'm reading through, I'm carefully noting when I hit something that seems to address it, I add it to my list and put my scripture reference next to it. I continue, so I'm continuing to build my topical list on that subject from the book. Because it's from the same author, with the same circumstances, right, the same contextual understanding. I don't have to retrain my mind on what is he saying there and why is he saying it and to whom is he saying it. So if the book itself readdresses your subject, often the book itself will explain to you what he, what he meant. 
I have found that to happen to me so many times. Uh, not so much in what we did this week, but it is an important point, and I just want to bring that up to you. So understand that if you, if you can let your immediate author and the immediate contextual setting be that which, which develops your subject for you, you're going to have really good insight because he's going to mean the same thing because he's saying it to the same people at the same time. Okay, then the last thing you're going to do uh, in this is you're going to do your cross-referencing. So that's why so often Kay will say, what do you learn here? How does it relate to what preceded it or followed it? And then she'll say, now go look at these cross-references. That is the, basically the process that you're doing. You're looking at immediate text, you're looking at it in a word study, you're looking at it in your book on the whole, then you're looking at it in cross-references. In totality, then, you have a very nice collection of things. The problem with going into other cross-references, however, um, brings up another instruction about doing inductive Bible study that I want to hit on here in just a minute, and that is remembering the context changes that are going to happen for you. The book changes, the literary style changes, and so forth. We'll talk about that in a sec. Now, for some topics, not in what we did this week, but for some of your topics, then another thing that can be helpful, and I'm just adding this in as an extra thought, is sometimes it's helpful if you do either historical research or even scientific research. Okay, so if you're, if you're doing something that has something to do with um, uh, the sciences, like when we were doing our Genesis studies and we needed to know things about creation and uh, some of the technicalities of, you know, let there be light, and when he spoke that, and it was so, and so then you want to look at the scientific qualities that that all means, right? And we're not smart enough on our own to do that, and we certainly it's not in the Word of God per se, but we can go to science and research that a little bit more to help develop our insights. So those are just some additional tips on how to do a topical study. Um, now, before I go on to talk about literary changes when you're doing these topical studies, I want to I talk to you about interpretation rules, and they are the same as they always are. Remember, the, the rules of inductive Bible study, when you're trying to come to interpretation about your subject or about the word that you've looked up, the first rule is you never... Very good. Never violate your known doctrine. So what you have to do is kind of address in your mind what is this subject about? Is this about God? Is this about man? Is this about um, uh, a quality like sin or salvation? Is it that kind of a subject matter? And once you realize what kind of what you're grabbing hold of here in your, in your research, you'd say, okay, what do I know is tr absolute truths about that subject so that I won't violate them? It's one of the reasons why the covenant study that we're going to do, uh, you know, get into after Christmas is so essential. It is the most fundamental principle to understanding salvation. If you understand covenant, you're going to understand what your salvation is, and you're never going to violate that in your interpreting of other texts that you come across. So never violate known doctrines is your first rule for interpretation once you've uh, accumulated information on your subject. Um, the second one is you're going to let your immediate text rule for interpretation on what you're looking at. So you're in the book of Philippians. A statement has been made. You have gone and done all these things I just told you to do. 
Now you've got all this information laid before you, and sometimes, actually quite often, you have to take the, the material on the whole and make a specific application of it to what you're reading. So when you do that, you have to say, okay, now remind myself, who is he talking to? Why is he there? What's going on in the book? You know, what's the circumstance? What's the historical events that have been going on? And keep those in mind as your highest guidance for picking the right interpretation for your book. Okay? So you let your context rule for interpretation without violating your known doctrine. Okay? Everybody with me? All right, now... You're, you're going to use for interpretation, use all possible research tools before drawing conclusions. So make sure you've done all the steps that you can think of. All right. And then the other thing is this. At the very end of all that, sometimes it depends on the kind of subject you're, you're studying, but you might find you're on one that's really challenging. There are a few in Scripture. Actually, I have a whole book, a Bible study book at home. It's, it's called... Um, difficult passages or difficult verses in scripture and it's really f kind of fun to go in and read some of those things too because each author whoever they are they're going to have their own bent on things and often what I see in those kinds of books is they don't justify or give apologetically understanding to me as to how they came to their interpretation they just say this is what it means and then they go on and that is very annoying for an inductive student because we were like, well, how did you come to that interpretation? So if you follow these steps that we've just talked, to, that I've just talked to you about, not that we have studied this together, but if you and I have followed these things, done all the, the steps, we're making sure we don't violate known doctrine, we're using our immediate context for sound interpretation, then, uh, then when we are ready to try to take in additional people's thoughts on it, we have something to filter it through, right? So these are the things you're going to do next, is you're going to seek insights from others. One would be how. Can you think of some ways that you would search out other people's views on it? Concordances or or commentaries, right, would be a great resource. And I would recommend you do more than one commentary. Don't just read one. Find some that you know are pretty reliable, that people in circles that you travel in, they feel that they're pretty sound. But don't read just one guy. Read two or three guys on your subject so that you have something to kind of balance against one another. What might be another way? Who else might? Huh? Oh. <laughs> Funny, Margaret. Call Katie, right? <laughs> I, you are welcome to call me anytime you want to. I am so happy to talk to you. And in, in, in many ways, what you're saying is absolutely true. You call people that, you, that are also studying the Word of God in the same way that you are. I always tell precept students, call another precept student that's been in the class that you're doing because they've been studying as hard as you have. They are, their mindset is already in the context of it, and they've got all kinds of thoughts going on in their head, right? And so uh, I call this iron sharpening iron, and you can talk it out with someone else who, but make sure you talk to somebody who's actually studied it and it's kind of fresh. It's pretty mean to kind of, what is the right word for it? But when you kind of, when you hit someone up beside the head with a question in, in their cold turkey on the subject at the moment and you expect them to engage in an in-depth conversation you've got all this knowledge that you've spent like in our case here we've had nine weeks 
actually a little bit more than that, but at least nine weeks of studying on it and concentrating on it, and you're bringing them in and you're just asking them a question out of the blue, and you know they they're not where you are. So it's I think your your students, your fellow students, are the best ones for you to go to. Uh, find find a friend or others who have studied. Um, and who else might be a good resource? Your pastors. Your pastors or others teachers that are in your circles that you can contact that um, I, I can tell you to this day that there are friends of mine that when I get stuck on things I still call them and they're precept teachers and they're people who I know have studied the subject matters and uh, you know so I just call them to bounce off and we get into conversation and maybe in the beginning of the one or two or three hour conversation they're kind of cold on it but by the time we're done <laughs> you know we've had our bibles out and we've been flipping pages together over the phone isn't it nice that we don't have to pay by the minute now for long distance calls anymore <laughs> isn't that dating myself but still i can remember days when i would make those long distance calls and i had to pay by the minute my husband would get the bill and he's like what are you doing I'm like, well we were working on a bible passage that i didn't understand <laughs> so yes call call somebody that can help you um and of course what goes without saying is your first and primary teacher is who God himself, the Holy Spirit. So you need to make sure that you start and end all studies in prayer so that the Lord can, by the power of his spirit, lead you and guide you to the right person for some good counsel, but he can also bring to you remembrance, scriptures, other things that you have studied. Okay, so doing a topical study is, is pretty simple. You saw the steps were not, they're not that hard. They are time-consuming. And if you consider doing this as thoroughly as some of these subjects can be, you can find that sometimes just doing a, uh, what we call a mini topical study in a, in the, inside the realms of another Bible book study. So in the book of Philippians, we're now stopping to do a, a little uh, mini study on giving or on contentment or on the mind. We're going to barely touch on it because the reality is that one subject could be a whole Bible study all by itself. When you hit subjects like spiritual warfare or spiritual gifts or like salvation, the concept of salvation itself, that's a huge study, right? So you just kind of have to keep all that in mind. But that is what we did this week. We did two or three kind of mini topical studies in uh, off of what we've looked at this this last couple of weeks here in Philippians chapter four, okay. So that is the first inductive thing I wanted to kind of talk about and just explain to you what you did in your homework this week, what comes up on a regular basis for us in precept. So this is nothing new to you, and for those of you who've been with me a while, you know this stuff. But for people who are new and are just kind of trying to learn what are we doing and how, you know, what is this, this inductive process about, it's good to actually talk about it and go through it. Now, the other thing I want to talk to you about is what I mentioned a minute ago, and that is the idea of the various kind of literary works and styles that you're in. When your homework on topical studies takes you into cross-referencing, there's a little bit of a danger uh, for you if you do not keep context in your mind in the right place. This week, we've been looking at the subject, in this case, it's been on 
uh, the subject of giving and also just kind of doing good deeds, right? Go doing good things, right? In, in that subject matter, Kay has taken us in a lot of our cross-references this week to the Old Testament, right? And we've been looking at God and his people Israel and the things that were taught in the law, were taught through the prophets, right? Now, how can you see that, that, that there might be some slight differences when, in how you're going to handle and interpret things when you're comparing it to the New Testament? What might be some differences that you can think of offhand? How is the Old Testament law different from the New Testament covenant in Jesus Christ? One is a works-based covenant. The other is a grace uh, covenant, right? So on that, those two principles, if, if that's all I mentioned to you right now, when you think about some of the verses that we went to and looked at in the Old Testament this week, do you think there's a possibility for misunderstanding an Old Testament scripture when you're trying to pull it forward into the new? Yes, because although there are principles of truth in the old and they absolutely apply in the new, you do have to take into consideration the change in the covenant relationship between God and his people. So in the old covenant, we had the law, and as we know, it, would, it was considered the letter of the law written on stone, right, on stone tablets. And because the the covenant was conditional. What, what was the Old Testament standard for obedience to God? Punishment if you did not obey, right? But if you did obey, blessing. Okay. Would you say that in our new covenant, you can apply that principle as well? I know. See, I'm already getting you all thinking. Okay, everybody's like, well... Yes, but mm, no, you know, we're kind of like doing this, okay, the nuance there that ha you have to kind of work through every kind of possibility. So when Kay asked us the question this week about, do you see this as a conditional statement or is it just a fact? And the way that she drew her conclusion, I think it was, I think it kind of tripped us up just a little bit in that. She didn't split the hairs on anything for you, and she didn't make sure that you knew which of the two subjects you were covering, right? Because what happens is, in, in our relationship with God in the new covenant, we have justification and we have sanctification. We also have e eternal glorification to come, right? There are three verb tenses of our salvation in the New Testament. We didn't have those three verb tenses in the old covenant, right? Although God was doing them in principle, they weren't, they weren't under the same covenant. The covenant they were under was conditional. You obey and you, get, and you get blessed. You disobey and there's cursing. And so often when they said, if you do this, then God will do this, that's true in the old. But in the new, is it true that if you fail God and if you don't f fully uh, be obedient in certain principles, will God fail to bless you and fail to protect you or fail to provide for you? Why not? Because of covenant. Very good, Susan. You got the right answer again. You are amazing. Every week you get the right answer, Susan. 
I just, I don't know how that happens, but it seems like covenant seems to be the factor here. <laughs> so, yeah, right, right. I bet, I bet if I asked everybody here now, you know, covenant is, covenant is the difference, the different kind of covenant. So I'm just throwing this out here today as this is one of those moments in doing an inductive Bible study where a question is asked by, you know, and, she, and I know she means it well-meaning, and it's because she has it so well in her head, and she's already defined the clear lines, and she understands certain principles, but there are people who are studying the Word of God that don't. And for you and I in this, in this kind of a, of a classroom setting, we are those who God is training up to help instruct others. So we have to kind of wade through the nuances of these things so that we make sure we split the hairs on things and we clarify and distinctly put things into basically into columns. This goes in this column and this goes in this column, right? And these two things, the number one rule for interpretation is never violate your known doctrines. So you cannot violate the subject of covenant, which says God will always protect you. He is your protector. He will always make provisions for you because that is his job, right? On the, on the flip side of that, we are to also protect God's name, but we don't do it to stay in covenant. We do it as a response to the covenant. Who initiated the covenant of grace? God did. Did he put a condition upon that covenant with us that he would only bless us if we were producing or acting in a certain way? No. So can you see now where there might be a problem if you're not careful in how you look at some of these verses? You have to remember, what is your literary style? What, what is the the contextual setting in which these things were said. So when you flip to the Old Testament, automatically your mind has to go the law and the Old Covenant, right? Now, does that mean that concerning the, the things that are taught in the law, that none of them apply into, the, into our New Testament? No, it does not. But you do have to still split the hairs on it. So, with all that said, now that I've got your mind thinking in that way, now we can go ahead and start looking at our subjects and start looking both Old Testament, New Testament. We can bounce back and forth because it, you have refreshed your memory. It's been brought to your attention on, in a highlighted way that there are nuances in here that you don't want to violate your known doctrines. And you understand that there, that there were two distinctive different kinds of covenants. And so sometimes it's not always a direct application. There may be an application, but the application has to be handled under the authority of the covenant in which we are studying Philippians, which is grace, salvation, grace, by grace, okay? Any questions on that? I, I, I did some, a bunch of look, looking up on this in this New Testament. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law, right? Galatians 3.13. Uh, Matthew 5.17, Jesus came to fulfill the law, not to abolish it. So it's not done away with, it's been fulfilled in him, but there are qualities of the law that are absolutely abolished according to uh, Hebrews 8, 9, and 10. What, what qualities of the law have been abolished? What parts about the law have been abolished for you and I in Jesus Christ? Sacrifice at the temple. Anything that pertains to the, to the works of the law are done, right? 
And yet we are still, according to James and, uh, chapter 2, Matthew chapter 7, Mark chapter 12, and many others, we are, however, to fulfill the law. In James, it talks about us fulfilling the royal law. Do you guys remember what that's talking about? It, you, that he says, you do, uh, by loving our neighbor as ourselves, we are to fulfill the ro royal law. And the royal law, what is the, um, the golden rule and what is the, uh, the greatest of the commandments according to what Jesus taught? Love the Lord your God with all your heart and love your neighbor as yourself. And if you keep this, you have kept the royal law. Isn't that interesting? So the royal law has been fulfilled in Christ, not abolished. However, you go on and you look at uh, Jeremiah 31, and he makes it clear in that prophetic word to us that the, that the law, when it was given, was written on stone tablets. It was external, and they were to simply obey what they saw in that external law. But in the new covenant, what was the law going to be written on? Our heart. How? How does that law get written on your heart? That's kind of an interesting question. Go ahead, Bob. By the Holy Spirit. It's written on you. And so when God, when God saved you in the moment of your salvation, when you said, I believe you, Lord. I trust you, Lord. I, will, I, I am verbally in agreement with you, and I am telling you I will follow you and uh, submit to you. And when you make that mental whatever conversation is that's going on between you and the Lord in that, when he says, you are now mine, he seals you with the Holy Spirit. He gives you his spirit. So then he says, in, he, in Hebrews 8, also in 2 Corinthians 3, he says, I will write my laws on their minds. Now that talks about what we're going to st study on a little topical study about the mind. How can we have the mind of Christ and how can we be obedient to the law? Because God has given you the mind. And we looked at one of those verses even in our homework. Galatians chapter 3 says, Now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor. In other words, you're no longer told, do this and be blessed. If you don't do this, you're going to be cursed. You're not under that kind of law anymore. That the, what you are, are now is we have the mind of Christ by the Spirit of God dwelling us in us. And this is what it says in Ephesians 8 9. For by grace you have been saved through faith, that not of yourself, it's a gift of God. It's not a result of your works, right? So that no one may boast. But do you know what the next verse says? For we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works. So it's not like the good works go away. You've been created to do them, but you were first and foremost created by grace in this relationship with God. So, and he prepared them beforehand so that we would walk in them. In 1 Corinthians 2 and also in um, 3 and in 4, there's the general subject of the fact that we have the mind of Christ. God will perfect you according to Philippians until the day of Christ. Right? That's what he said in chapter 1, verse 6. He will perfect you until the day of Christ. Why? Because you now have the Spirit of God dwelling in you. The mind of Christ has been given to you. And therefore, he says in, in Ezekiel, I will put my Spirit in you and cause you to walk in my precepts and statutes. So, if he, has, if he has given you the Holy Spirit, is he going to not bless you if you fail in it in any way? Will he not bless you? 
No. But under the old covenant, yes. So it, the, this is the distinction. Um, all right. Let's go now then and take a look at these subjects that we looked at this week. Um, we have a flow of thought going here with rejoicing in the Lord always. We've talked about that in chapter 1, and that is the focus of you, in order for you to have joy always, your focus needs to be it's all about Christ. Christ first, living for Christ only. Whether you live, whether you die, regardless of how the outcome is, your focus is I'm doing it unto Christ because he is the one that I love. He's the one I'm living for. And then secondly in chapter 2 then, the second is likened unto it. Not only to love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, but the second is likened unto it, and that is to what? Love your neighbor as yourself. So that verse would be a great one for chapter 1 and 2, right? As an, as an overriding scripture verse to help you understand what he did in chapter 1 and chapter 2 was he has you to fulfill the royal law. Loving God and loving others, okay? That's in chapter 2. Then chapter 3, he then exhorts you to, uh, to live it out. Live out what it is that you are are, are um, claiming this is what's going to give you joy. If you glory in Jesus, if that is where your source of uh, attention and affection and um, exhortation comes from, if it's through Jesus and not through yourself, remember, because the contrast there was they were relying on what kind of works in chapter 3? Works of their flesh works of the flesh and he says not works of the flesh it's the work of Christ and if you keep your focus on that you're going to do so glory in what Jesus did on the cross don't glory in your own works this verse alone or this chapter alone in many ways answers the question that Kay gave to us I think at the end of uh, of our homework there in chapter um chapter 9 that we're in, in lesson 9. Okay, and then the fourth one is where we're at right now in chapter 4. Practice these things that you have seen in me. And then the result of that, if you practice these things, is there a result that, that, we're, that we are promised? What is the promise about those who do practice these things in this way? What is... Verse 7 and verse 9... What is 19? Um, well, yeah, that's a good one, too. But that was specific to the subject matter of the, the giving prim primarily. But go back to 7 and 9. And he says, if you do these things, what, what will happen? The peace of God will keep your hearts and your minds. Okay, so we're going to be talking today then about hearts and minds in general. And we're going to talk about some specific subjects. The first one is about the mind. So... In your homework, she asked you to go in and look on the things that it said to dwell on, and she started you out by saying, first of all, folk, uh, define for yourself the definition of the word dwelling, right? To dwell on. What did you see was the definition of to dwell? Dwell on. What was the number and your definition for that? 3049. And what does it mean to dwell? Okay, to think. I'm sorry, say that again. 
suppose, okay. Reason. Okay. I had one that said ponder. I liked that one. I like to ponder. <laughs> I'm pondering things. <laughs> you know what I love about that particular one is the idea of diligence. What is, what is the, the idea of diligently to consider? What does that tell you? Yeah. On your part, it requires a, a purposeful intent, right? That you are, it's not just something that you, by laziness, come across and you think, oh, that's interesting and move on. Pondering with diligence. Uh, give me your whole sentence again. Ponder. Diligently consider. And then it tells you what to do next with it. Once you've diligently considered it and then take it to heart, accept it or believe it or reckon it through. You know, often in our world today, would you say we have a problem with looking at truthful facts and coming up with an actual truthful uh, analysis of, the, of things? What do you think that's all about? Think about where we are in history on a timeline of God's work. And where we're headed, where are we headed, by the way? To those end times, right? When all things will culminate. And we're going to go through that period called um, the tribulation, right? And then Jesus comes again. So as we're traversing down the road here, and we're getting closer and closer to that day, the day of Christ Jesus, which Philippians speaks of, um, what we see is the further down the road we get, people, what are they doing with information that comes into them? Are they using this kind of dwelling on? Are they actually reckoning? Are they thinking? Are they reasoning? Another word, reason, you can almost redefine that word too. What does it mean to reason? Yeah, it means get, take as much information in as you can. It's kind of like what I was trying to explain to you earlier about doing a topical study. The purpose is, is to bring in as much information from as many varieties of possible uh, uh, resources to bring it then all together, lay it out together on, on a list or in even... I like to do everything from timelines. You know how I love timelines. If they apply or just do a list, or draw a picture. Sometimes that helps. But you have, to, you have to really take in all this to reason it all so that then you can actually come up with a factual decision. How often have we seen in our world today that people present things, and I don't know if they do it deliberately or not. I do think they do. But they leave off information what is their reason for doing that? Why would they leave off information when they're trying to tell you something? Okay. Yeah. Right. Does that feel deceptive to you? Right. Absolutely. We're bombarded and we're so kind of overwhelmed with this quantity of bad 
Yeah. After a while, you become numb to it, too. It's another, it's another way of desensitizing you to even hearing certain things, right? So, uh, you know, uh, the, the cynical person in every one of us <laughs> that tends to rise up after a while, it's, I already know what I believe, forget it. I don't want to hear it. So we often, sadly, even in issues that we really should be paying attention and listening to all sides and hearing all the facts, we tend to shut people out. But the reason we tend to do that is because we're not getting full in, we're not getting full truthful information from either side. Each side has their own um, persuasion on how they want things to end up. Each of them, because they're a, they have a bias, a presupposition, we call it in, in scriptural uh, teaching and learning, do not come into things. You should never come into things with a presupposition. You shouldn't have already made up your mind on how you see things. You should be coming to it as clean as you can. It's one of the reasons we talked earlier about, you know, when you go into an old study you've already done before, don't start with your old curriculum. Start with fresh curriculum. Why? You don't want to come in with presuppositions. You want a clean slate before you. Let the Holy Spirit work through you in the moment. Gather all your, your information as you're moving along, and you'd be amazed at how many new things you learn because even though you, can't, you, you try to be as um, impartial about things as you can, you, you always carry with you still insights and thoughts. You can't avoid that. That's the human part of us. But if you're truthful in the way you're handling what's coming into you, you're going to write the facts down, you're going to write the scripture verse next to it, and you're not going to try to manipulate what you're reading to come out to an outcome that you like. Okay? It's kind of like, how do you decide what is your title for your, ch your chapters? Don't come into it with your presupposition of this is my subject, I love this one, let me pet that little kitty cat, and that's the one I'm going to say is the title because I like it. That's not how you come into doing inductive study. You want to be as objective as you can. That's why he says to you and I in this book, I believe, dwell on these things. How are you going to come to a place in your life that you can have joy in the Lord always? Well, he's suggesting to us then that the first thing that you need to do is, is matters what you're dwelling on, Right? Dwelling on, pondering on, and not just pondering as in, oh, that's nice, but pondering as in, maybe you need to pull out some books and do some research on that. Read up on it. Find out what God says in the whole counsel of his word. Find out what maybe other commentaries have had to say about it so that you can filter that through all the things that you've already learned as well. And just kind of weigh it all out and say, try not to be obje totally objecting unless you see a a doctrinal plumb line that's been violated, don't throw out the baby with the bathwater. Okay? So you're going to take information and you're going to think it through. You're going to decide. You're going to ponder. You're going to diligently consider. Diligence requires discipline and purposeful intention. Okay? That's a lot of work right there. If you're going to ponder in that way, if you're going to dwell in that way, that takes some work. That's not something as passive, is it? It's an active it's an active thing. And the other thing is, Kay said when we looked at that, dwell on these things. That was dwell on these things. That's in chapter 4, verse 8, right? Dwell on these things. And then she, um, she told you about the verb tenses of this. What kind of, well, what is the verb tense on this dwell on?
present tense. Now, if it's present tense, dwell on these things, what is that telling you? Continuous, always, habitually, ongoing, right? It's something that basically it's an action word, and it's an action word that implies a habit that you keep doing, right? So for how long are we to dwell on these things, which, which uh, Paul says is going to take us to a place where we can be joyful in the Lord always? How often does this need to go on? Can, well, we're done with Philippians today. And we're at lesson nine. We're all done. Are you done dwelling on it? He's, he's telling them that this is something that is to be continually going. How many of you are naturally inquisitive? You just have a natural, yeah, I just got to kind of get how many of us are not. <laughs> I have to discipline myself to be inquisitive. We can be, uh, my husband and I can be taking a walk or driving down the road or whatever, and there'll be something that'll be going on, and he'll go, oh, did you see that? And I'm going, what? <laughs> you know, he just has this, that's me. I'm just oblivious. You know, I'm in my own little world. Now, I might be with my nose in my Bible at the time while he's looking at the pretty things on the road, but he has a natural inquisitive that takes him to learn. For some of us, that's not a natural quality about our personalities. So in this writing, Paul is actually challenging the collective whole body of Christ, and he's saying all of you need to discipline yourself. There needs to be a diligent consideration of these things. So now let's talk about what the, these things are. He says, number one, what is true? right? Uh, I got to learn how to spell. <laughs> Sorry. What is true? Now, I know <laughs> I kind of hit on some of these uh, either last week or the week before. It might have been last week. It's been so long ago, I can't remember. Now, Kay did not ask you to look up all these word definitions, but in, did anyone do some word searching on some of these things? What does it mean to be true? Good, Martha. Oh, I love that. It's in fact, basically, fact-based, in reality... And undeniable. I love that. That's very interesting. Okay, so it's an undeniable. Now, in regard, if you take it then to the next step, did you go anywhere beyond that in your, that is the first definition of the word true. What is true? True has to do with facts, correct? But in the implication of this one, what is true has to do about facts, but facts pertaining to what? Well, when you look at the rest of it, it's, it's all about things that have to do with, with, is it literal reality, this is a chair, or is it have to do with something that's, that is more on the spiritual level of internal it's the things in the mind. It's the, what, it's the thinking, not the concrete things so much, right? So in that regard, then, what, what they're really saying is it has to do with what's true in character. 
in your, because the, the result of you coming to see what is true is that which is going to affect your character because in your character, then when you live it out, what's going to happen? There's going to be some concrete, truthful results. So there's going to be an external truthfulness that results out of it, but it begins with the internal. So this kind of truth about fact and reality, what is undeniable, it's not like me looking out at the sky saying, uh, the sun is yellow, you know, or the sky is blue, or the grass is green. It's not quite that in that nuance. The, there's a subtlety to this because it's talking about the things which you're thinking in your mind, dwelling on. So it's an abstract thing, which reflects then in character. So it has to do with character. It's not truthfulness exactly. It's what's true in character or that which is sincere is another word that they used. Uh, true in character, sincere. All right? So that is the first one. So she says, the things that you're to dwell on, reason on, diligently consider is that which in, it, in its character, that which is true, that which is factual, that which is undeniable. Very interesting. Especially when you're thinking about your relationship with God and who God is, right? When you think about who God is and you talk about the factual things about him, his character and his attributes, then the, this has to do with what you reason in your mind to be true about who God is. This is you making an assessment with, which leads to a, an altering of your character because your character now is in line with who God says he is. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Very good. That's exactly, yes, and that is exactly where we, we are heading on this, is the idea that how do you get to that place where dwelling on things, you know, if you think about the, the stuff that comes into you from the world around you, these are the concrete things. You can see them. They're evidence. So in that regard, that's the fact that you, that you could be looking at. But is that going to help you come to this place of pondering so that you come to actual truth? The answer is no, because in the world, are people actually living in truth? Are they living out truth? Are they living in light of the truthfulness of who God created them to be and what he created man to be about? Do we see that in the world? No. So you cannot look at hard, concrete, physical things and come to truthfulness that this is speaking of. This truthfulness is the abstract truthfulness of understanding the realities of God in, in your mind and in your thinking that then results in, in a truthful way that you're going to live. You're going to start, though, the thinking on and the pondering on through the mind. Therefore, the only way to get there is be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind. Now, how do you get that renewing of your mind? What, what's going to transform you? The word of God itself, because you have to have a you have to have a core value system that teaches you what real truth is in order to combat the things that the world wants to say to you is truth. They have their truth reality, and they will st they will get on their soapbox and stand there and sing until the 
you know, the cows come home, that they believe that what they believe is true. And if you don't believe what they believe is true also, then you're evil, you're unkind, you're, you know, mean-spirited, huh? Oh, I love that word. Thank you for bringing that one up. You're judgmental. That is, you know, the, the biggest accusation that the Christian gets on a regular basis is that if we don't agree with their viewpoints on how the world operates or what's, what, how we perceive things or how we uh, discern what, how to respond to certain things, then you're just being judgmental, especially if your answer is that person needs to be stopped, that that law needs to be changed. That's a bad law. It has to go. Why? Because it's not in line with real truth. And where does real truth come from? The word of God himself, from God himself. That, that is another, it brings up a point that I hadn't thought about until just now. But that brings up another point about the word of God and why you and I as, as children of God need to hold fast to the truthfulness of standing on the fact that this is God, a God-breathed word and that every word in it is truth and fact and it, and it is not in error. There are no flaws in it. There are no mistakes not really in, in the big picture. These are, these are people who find one word and then twist it. And the reason they're out of sync with, with their understanding often is because they don't know the bigger picture. They haven't got all the pieces brought in to make their decision on it. They're taking one verse out of its context to say what they want it to say. Right? And we, in inductive Bible study, we do the opposite. We keep everything in its context. We draw in information to help us broaden our, our perspective and insights. And then we draw a conclusion that fits the context without violating known doctrine. Okay, so what is true is the first one. So, and then we're going to look at what is next. Whatever is honorable. And what is... What does the word of uh, honorable mean? If you didn't do a word study, okay, Martha? Worthy, uh, did you say worthy of reverence? Is that what I heard you say? To be in awe. Dignified. Very interesting. Would you say that there are things that the world believes is dignified and they respect that we would not? Yeah. So again, we're back to, you have to make a decision about where your source is coming from. What is the source of how you decide what is honorable? For you and I, as, as children of God, our decision on that has to be that we go to God to say, God, what is the standard? When you think about the, the law of God, we, we know that earlier I mentioned it, that it was a tutor to lead us to Christ, right? It was, it was basically an instruction book for Israel to live by so that they understood how to relate to God and how to relate to one another in an honorable, dignified, um, respectful way, correct? 
And in the result of that was that other people would see them and their relationship with God and who their God was, and they would also then come into faith. Now, um, if we if we veer away from the standard that God gives us, the the truth of what He says is truthfulness, can we still end up with understanding what is honorable? Do you think in and of ourselves we have enough within us to know what is truly honorable? I, do you guys want me to decide what's honorable? Okay, do you want your neighbor next do you want your neighbor next door who may or may not be a Christian be the one who decides what's honorable? He, there's a knowledge of tr- uh, that he exists or he does not exist, and there's a the subject matter there is that we are without excuse to worship God as a creator because within us there's an, an intuitive understanding that there is a God. There has to be. By logic of looking around this world that you would come to a conclusion. So in that way, you're right, there's a subtlety there that you could go to. And see, that's what they might, the world might say then. They would take you there and then they would say, okay, so since you have an intuitiveness within yourself to know that there's a God, then you also have an intuitive within yourself to know what's right or wrong. But what, is, what does God's word teach us about that? Does man's heart have a goodness about it to be able to know what is good and honorable? Apart from him, what kind of hearts do we have? Wicked and, 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 dis, and dis, deceitful, right? There's a verse that Kate quotes all the time, and I can't remember it now, but it's a... Your heart, say it again. There you go. That's it. It's completely wicked. Who can who can know? And we, in and of ourselves, left to our own our own devices, we will come to varying uh, decisions on what we feel is really honorable or uh, respectful, right? What, that God would consider it, it respectful is a totally different thing. I know in my conversations with family members, we have totally different views on what's right and what's wrong in behaviors in life. And we also have very different views on why people are different in those manners, on those subjects. You know, they think that there's a systemic problem um, that has to do with how they were born. I have a systemic value that says it's all about sin, (laughs) you know. And so we vary on how we got to our decisions. Well, people can't help it because they were born that way. And I said, no, people weren't born that way because God judges it. And he wouldn't judge it if it weren't sin. So we have a a systemic difference on how we evaluate. So how do we come to whatever is honorable is going to be based on where we're getting our information from, right? Whatever is honorable. So now the other, that kind of companions that is whatever is right. So who gets to decide what is right? (laughs) When it comes to ju- justice, if you want to take that word and expound it a little bit, what is, ju- what is right? It's the word just. It means just. And when you talk about justice, 
then you can tell then that the relationship of this word has to do with how you treat others outside of yourself. It's a, it's a man-to-man kind of a word. Justice has to do with how you and I, when it, when it relates to you and I in executing justice, it's how we treat one another, right? So it basically it says in my, in my uh, word study, it's as in toward others, just, being just, as in toward others, how you treat your neighbor, right? The next one that goes with that is whatever is pure. Now, this one's really cool, and it's interesting how these go right next to each other here because in this one it's it's has to do with what is right outwardly towards others but what is whatever is pure what does that word mean i bet you could guess it through if you thought about it go ahead martha that's right ah uh. Uh, so it has to do with uh, purity, rever- it really kind of goes along with the idea of reverence, but ceremonially for worship, basically. So if you're talking about the concept then of worship for purity, whatever is pure, and it relates to worship, who are we worshiping? God, obviously not man. So where the first one before had what is right it was had to do with our mindset in relationship toward men but in this one whatever is pure has to do within our relationship toward God right isn't that interesting how just the subtleties in that kind of takes you to see where some things relate to your your human relationships and other words really relate more to your relationship with God ceremonially for worship and so it sets its face towards God Sets its face toward God. I thought that was interesting. So here's the Godhead, and this one is doing what's right toward men. Okay? So men and God are now, now both covered. Now, we can go over here. And let's pick it up over on this board so that I can finish here. Uh, whatever is lovely. We'll just do a, a couple more of these and then we can move along. But whatever is lovely. Any, any ideas about what loveliness is talking about? Okay, break the word down. It'll tell you right away what the word's talking about. Lovely breaks down to be uh, the root of its word is. Love, right? So it ha- the word m- is talking about what is endearing to love, what causes in you to, to love someone or something, right? Endearing you toward love. Uh, and it, again, it's talking about uh, your relationships of people face-to-face, people that you're in direct contact with. with. Set your face on uh, towards whatever is lovely or to ponder and dwell on the things 
that are lovely, then it would apparently, from what I can see from the definition, is it basically has to do with how I perceive or look at my fellow brothers and sisters in Christ. As, as I look at them, am I looking at them for loveliness, to find qualities in them of loveliness? Rather than, now, and in the context of this book, how might that relate to the subject that has already preceded this? We had two women who were having a problem with each other, right? And there was a quarrel going on between them. Disharmony. If they were pursuing, dwelling on the things of loveliness, looking for things in one another that provoked an endearing toward one another, would they still have that disharmony? Because instead of dwelling on the things that they see that are flaws in one another or things that they don't like about one another or maybe the tug of war that was going on, the rivalry that was going on, instead they would be looking at each of the, their brothers and sisters in Christ and saying, I love this about that person. They are so beneficial to the body of Christ when they do A, B, C, D, whatever. Or I love that they are always so gentle with people or that they always bring such light or delight into a room when they enter or that they are so organized that they keep everybody together and things moving like it should and there's things are being accomplished. I mean, you look for the things in one another that are lovely. Isn't that beautiful? And that relates really well, I think, to going back to these two women previously. They needed to be dwelling on those things which were lovely. Dwell on these things, whatever is lovely. It's not just what's lovely about God, but it's also what is lovely in one another. Who, by the way, have God dwelling in them, right? Whatever is lovely. So to provoke um, or to, how did it say it here? To endear love. Or the word can also be lovable. The idea of what's lovable. And this, again, is talking about men and women face-to-face to, face to face with men and women. Those people that you're coming into contact with face-to-face. Face. Now, the next one, if it doesn't surprise you, the next one says, whatever is what? Whatever is of good repute. Now, what does repute mean? I want you to look at chapter 1, verse 27, because I gave myself a note that this was a good example that what Paul was kind of alluding to, I thought, in this, when I looked up the definition. One twenty-seven. Okay, so in 27, someone read that verse. So whether I am with you or whether I hear of you. So if you hear about, if, you, if he says, whatever is of good repute. So... A repute, what, what is that word if you develop it more? Don't bring it down smaller, develop it bigger. 
What is repute a word, a word for? Reputation. You build upon it and it becomes reputation. So it's things that you would hear about someone, right? And if they are uh, a good reputation, a good report, correct? That's what you're to dwell upon. So if I hear, so how would you might maybe make an application of that in your life? How many of you have ever heard bad reports about your brothers or sisters in Christ? Or people who have said negative things about your church or people who have said evil things about God himself? But when, it, when, it's, it, when this one is saying the opposite of that, whatever is of good repute. So repute means fair speaking. It means attractive. And it is referring to the absent. Whatever is absent from your present, but you're just hearing about it. And if you're hearing about it, and it's of good, in, in some ways it kind of makes me think about a, a principle my mom taught when I was a young kid, and that is that, you know, when you hear bad things about people and you don't really know for a fact they are or they are not true, what, do you, what should you do with that information? Not, certainly not repeat it, and certainly not do what? Certainly not dwell on these things, right? If so, as a matter of fact, there is scripture that teaches that if someone wants to bring a charge, for instance, against particularly an elder or a spiritual leader, um, God's word teaches us that we're first and foremost to give that person who has had good standing in the community the benefit of the doubt. The first thing you do is give them the benefit of the doubt. You don't immediately go to, I am going to charge them with that, or I'm going to believe that evil thing. And for sure, I'm not going to repeat that evil thing, right? I'm going to give them the benefit of the doubt. How can that be helpful in the functioning of the body of Christ? Do you think that's a good principle to live by? Yeah. So when you hear evil about another brother or sister in Christ, you're not to not only repeat it or to believe it, but you're also not to dwell on it. You know, if, if it's a part of, if, if God is bringing you to be a part of the solution, fine, then you get involved in that. But if you're not a part of the solution, what, what do people say? What are you a part of? You're part of the problem. <laughs> if you begin to gossip and talk about other people, then you become a part of the problem, not a part of the solution. When we look at, for instance, the, these two women that are in disharmony and Paul is dealing with them, when he was brought a repute, a reputation, a report uh, from, uh, from, I'm assuming Epaphrodites my, would be my guess, but when he got this report about them, was Paul engaged in finding a solution? The answer is yes. He was trying to bring back harmony and bring back peace and teaching them that there needs to be resolution to this problem, right? And his focus was, of all things, the follow-on which we're looking at. He says, on these things dwell. And if these women would consider whatever is honorable, dignified, and respected, whatever is right, being, being just treatment toward other men, whatever is, whatever is um, lovely, meaning that which would bring about endearing toward one another, then on these things dwell. And if they do just two or three of these things, what's going to be the result? What is there, what's going to happen with this unrepaired relationship that's going on in their midst? 
it's going to be reconciled. Things are going to be brought back to harmony and unity, right? Okay, so pretty good stuff, huh? When you start breaking this down and really pondering on this, this is why God doing inductive Bible study and pondering on these things, dwelling on it, takes you to that place where you start to really analyze God's word and the practicality of it. How it does bring such a place of um, goodness, really. This one of the reasons so often people love the house of faith, even if they're not believers. They love to run to it. They love to go to church on Sunday mornings and sit there. It's a place where the world is not judging. It's a place where people look for the good in others. It's a place where people honor each other and respect one another on the whole. At least it's supposed to be, right? Correct? And is this something that's going to happen, you know, spontaneously without any work on our part? Apparently not. This, because we have got a problem, don't we? What is our problem? What are we still battling while we're living on this earth? Our own, fl our own flesh and our, and our own sin. And even though it's been conquered in Christ Jesus and it's been forgiven, it doesn't mean that we don't still battle it. And that it's certainly not, that it's not present. Is the world around us and are we outnumbered? Is, this, is the sin of the world and the thinking of the world still around us? Yes. So in Ephesians chapter 6 it says, Our battle, however, is not with flesh and blood. So although we sometimes turn to the world and we look at the world and we think it's those evil people. We need to just get rid of them evil people. Then we'll be good, right? But the real reality is, is it against flesh and blood? Who is our real battle with? With Satan. So now Satan is, again, then a battle of what? A physical battle? A spiritual battle. It's, again, back to the mind. It's a mind battle. It's a, it's a battle of the heart and the will and the thinking. So this book teaches us that dwelling on what God calls goodness and that which produces goodness in us is how we have victory. And it's how you and I then... In a fallen world with people who are sinners and people who are coming against us, even in the household of faith where disharmony occasionally pop pops its ugly head up, even amongst brothers and sisters in Christ, God says, but in, in um, oh, my thought just left me. Oh, I just hate it when that happens. I was on a roll. <laughs> and my brain just left me. We, we have got to uh, train our mind, though. We have to discipline our mind, as it says up here, to diligently consider and to ponder and dwell on these things that we might therefore then rejoice in the Lord always. Thank you. <laughs> that was where I was going. <laughs> I knew it would come back as soon as I got my mouth moving again. Okay. Okay, so we, we can go on. Do you guys want me to finish this, or do you just want to move on to the next part? Are you finding this very beneficial? Okay, we can finish it. It's got just anything excellent. And what is excellent? Do you have a, a word on that one, a word study? Yes, Martha is my savior today. Thank you, Martha. What is your number? Okay. Uh huh. Okay. So it's moral. Again, now we're talking about something that's not. It's not specifically 
an external thing of morality, but it will eventually get there, right? But where does morality start? In the mind. I love this because we're fixing to look at, see why this is the truth. So it's moral excellence. Um, and this is interesting. With moral excellence, think about morality. When you're an immoral person, just think of some of the sins, right? Are these sins toward God or toward man? Well, you're right. They really are. I mean, ultimately, it's always going to be toward man. But in the, in the dynamics of the church, which is what he's working on here, toward how they're relating with one another, when you have moral impurity or moral lack of excellence, it's really it's talking about relationship of man to man again, mostly in this context, right? It's talking about, it's not talking about spiritual immorality of sinning against God, but it's talking about physical immorality of our actions with one another, right? The way that we would behave. Moral excellence. In this case, he's saying anything excellent has to do with moral excellence. Um, moral quality. I like that one. Did you get that one too? Moral quality and um, or physical power. That was another one. I didn't completely understand it, but it said it, it is love with its face to man. Primarily in this particular verse, the context of it is this is relationship with men. Enriched life. Okay. It, it, so in other words, I'll just do it like this because it leads to that, an enriched life, right? If you have moral excellence. If you do not have moral excellence, and this is, this is a subject, when I was working as a corporate chaplain, I had this come up all the time. It matters what you do, doesn't it? And every choice you make has an impact. And often what happens with people who don't have moral thinking that's correct, their behavior becomes incorrect. And once they make one mistake, then what does that lead to? Another one and another one. And the scriptures talk about that, how, there's, how sin is this, it's, it's, it's a slippery slope, right? Okay, excellent. So now the other one is anything worthy of praise. Okay, whatever is worthy of praise. I liked that. That was interesting. Okay. It, go ahead, Martha, if you have one. Accommodation, meaning to commend someone. Accommodate, yeah, I, yeah, to, yeah, I probably have it wrong up here, so just ignore it. <laughs> to commend them, in other words, right? And what else? Approval. Approval. Again, who's standard, right? Approval. Mine said, whatever values you hold or consider as virtuous. 
And in the end, it, you know, often what happens is if, you, if you're looking for whatever is worthy of praise, you could slip into the idea that as an individual, you're always seeking for praise, right? And God's Word teaches us that what are we supposed to do concerning praiseworthy events or, or the seeking after being praised by men? Is that, a, is that a thing that we're actually looking for? The praises of men? We're not. We're actually looking for praises of God. However, if you are living a worthy life that is worthy of praise, is that a good thing? Yes. <laughs> it's not that that's the heart of what you're seeking for, but the fact that you desire to have men speak highly of you is a goal that is admirable. So it's interesting. It's, again, the nuances of that. You've got to split the hairs. You're not seeking for the praise of men, especially if the decision is who are you going to honor, men or God, right? You are seeking for the praises of God. However, it is admirable for you and I that we should live in such a way that men would praise us. There's a verse in Matthew, I think it says, that, that, that the things that we would do then would bring praise to God, that they would be things that God would receive praise because you did them. And it, he was, and give, there you go. That's exactly right. That men would see your good works and give God praise. All right. So anything that is worthy of praise is what you are to dwell on. Now the dwelling on it does nothing, has no effect until you put it into action. But he's saying here that you are to consider those things and say, when I'm making life decisions about what I'm going to be involved in, what I'm going to do, how I'm going to live, how I'm going to behave, how I'm going to treat my neighbor or my, my fellow Christian at church, whether I'm going to be in harmony or disharmony, that you need to think on those things which are worthy of praise. What is going to result in praise? Mostly praise for your Father in heaven, ultimately. But you should seek that people would look at your life and say, she or he is a godly person. They are beneficial to the body of Christ. They bring delight to God and to the work of God. They make my life so much easier because of the way that they, whatever. You want people to praise you. Not for your own glory, but that you bring God glory. Right? So on those things. So now this brought me back to a verse in chapter 1 where he was praying for them in 1.9. And he says about them, um, what is he praying for them to do there? Do you remember? And this I pray, that your love may abound still more and more. How? In real knowledge. So now you kind of know if from the context of the book what real knowledge is that he's speaking of. This is the real knowledge he's speaking of. These things that you are to dwell on, to ponder on, and then therefore to live it out. But it starts with the thinking of the mind. Now, in order to get a better understanding about the subject of the mind, and I've run out of space here to work almost. Let's see. Let me try it over here. I'll, I'll give myself another column here. Okay. The mind, that's our subject that we are looking at at this point in, in our topical study about the mind. This is what your mind needs to dwell on. 
He said he prayed for them that it it could be from a source of real knowledge, which we have already discussed is truth that comes from God, and what God says is true is what real knowledge is, correct? Now, what you do in this step two is once you've looked at your immediate text and developed it as much as you can, now you're going to go, you're going to look at your book on the whole, on the subject of the mind. So I'm going to take you to a few verses. Verse, uh, chapter 1, 27 and 28, what does it say there? Someone read that for me. We're getting really short on time. We're probably not going to get through everything. But we'll get the mind figured out at least. That's the important one. <laughs> yeah, in 27 and 28, what does it say in the text about the mind? Only conduct yourself in a manner worthy of the gospel of Christ so that whatever, whenever I, whether I come or see you or Okay, so in that particular verse where the mind is mentioned also in our, in our immediate book, the book on the whole, it speaks there about the mind that we are to have a mind that strives together with one another, basically with one purpose. It talks about the, in this case, it's talking about the gospel for the faith of the gospel. Now, I looked up that word strive. That means to labor with, to strive with at the same time. In other words, it is not, a, it's not an independent action of me doing the striving, but it's me joining you in the striving. So in, again, when you look at the subject of these two women, was, were they striving together for the gospel at this point? Had they in the past? Yes, they had. And so what we want then in, in this book, according to what he's, his his endeavors here are is to bring that unity of mind back together um, he tells them also uh, in that same verse not to be alarmed about your mind not to be alarmed by opponents all right so that's in one 27 and 28. So that's one point about the mind. Then the next one that we see is in chapter 2, verses 1 to 5. What does it say there about the mind? Wow. So in this case, he's saying there that we are to be of the same mind. Be of the same mind. And then when he speaks about being of the same mind, then he expounds on he explains to them a couple of scenarios. Now, he, it's not an exhaustive list, but in this book, he hits on several points. Um, he wants them to have an attitude of what? Humility. Same mind. Humility. Humility. 
And when it regards uh, rela interpersonal relationships with one another, what does he want for them to do? Right, to consider others more important. Wow, if you and I can just get this much in our minds on how we are to work and, and dwell within the body of Christ and in the world, really, on the whole, but if we can get our minds to this place, what a difference it would be because our minds and our attitudes about one another, when, even when we enter into the house of faith to worship, would be completely in a different place. We would be focused on these things that are true and honorable and right and pure and righteous and of good report and excellence. We would have, tr have basically based on real knowledge, meaning that of God, right? And then when we came together, then we would be standing together, striving together. What a difference that can make. What a difference it makes when you and I stand shoulder to shoulder with one another striving for the same purpose rather than fighting one another. Instead of it being a, 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 a jealousy thing or a, or a competition about who's better and who's, who's doing what and, or who seems to be... I mean, it's really interesting, too, to me how people's perceptions of one another really can weigh in on these, the dynamics in a relationship. We perceive another person to be, oh, their life is so good and everything's so perfect and, and people love them and they've got the, the life by the tail. But the reality is, is that true? Do you know anyone who really, when you get to know them, that they are perfect or their life is perfect? The more you get to know people, the more things you find out about them that, uh, that, are, that they have challenges or that they have, still have sins that they're battling with in their own life right? Everyone has that. But if you and I know that that's true, and we are looking for the good in one another, and we're striving towards that, then when we come together, we can strive together. How much better it is if you and I are trying to help one another instead of fighting against one another or being jealous or having rivalries. We are to be of the same mind, having humility, considering others more important, um, and basically that same attitude as Christ. Right? The same attitude of Christ. So, so be of the same mind. That's in chapter 2, 1 to 5. Now we look at, um, I'm going to read a couple of these because so, I want to move to some cross-references real quick. In 3, 14 and 16, it says, have this attitude. And he's talking about those who have an attitude of maturity, those who are perfect. In verses 14 to 16, did you see that verse? It's kind of a tricky one, but now that we've kind of delved into it from a variety of different perspectives, we've looked at it from some different angles now, what we're seeing there is he's talking about those who have come at this point to the place, a place of maturity. It's not that they've totally arrived, because he says that about himself, not that I have already arrived or seized it or, or laid hold of it, but he says, I keep pressing on for that which I was laid hold of by Christ for. So he's talking about growing in the spiritual maturity. Takes you back to chapter 1, verses 6. What does the Word of God tell us about this journey of having an, this attitude of maturity and then holding on to that and keeping to progress in it? What does he say in 1, 6? 
Okay, so if God is the one who began this perfecting in you, and he will keep on doing it until the end, then can you fail in it? No. So is your, is even your, um, the, the question where Kay said, well, does one thing then have an effect of the other? Is it a cause and effect thing? What is the answer to that? Well, no, it really isn't a cause and effect. It is a fact. God will bring you to, the, to perfection. He says, he who began the good work will complete it. He will bring you to perfection. Each one of its, it, however, it is different. Everyone's life is slightly different. When we get into the subject of giving, which we, or unfortunately, you're not going to get to cover much today, but... Um, or ever probably because we're done. <laughs> Sorry. But giving is a good subject matter to kind of talk about how, how each of us have a different journey in the subject matter of giving in the household of faith. Um, some people have a spiritual gifting of giving. And so they have a natural inclination in that way because God has given that to them. He's put it in their heart. So for them, giving is, is like breathing. It's like me teaching. I can't help myself. I sit in a bus and my mouth opens, you know, and I start telling people something that they don't really want to hear, but I can't help it. People who are givers, they do it naturally, but for the rest of us, there's a training that needs to go on, right? Paul is, is exhorting these believers in that, and he's saying to them, thank you that you have always participated in the gospel. Thank you that you are now giving me. But then he speaks about how he's content in whatever circumstance he's in, right? He who began a good work in you shall complete it until the day of Christ Jesus, however, applies in the fact that what he is saying, he says, um, and my God will supply all your needs. It's a fact. God will. God will complete it. He will perfect you. And he will supply all your needs, even if you don't give as generously as you should. But here's what I love. It's to your credit that you are. And he commends them for it. Not because they're seeking the praises of men, but that it is a praiseworthy thing. Do you, are you seeing kind of how all this is starting to fit together a little bit? He's saying, I, I am going to commend it because it's a praiseworthy thing. Although, I got to tell you, I didn't really need, I don't have to have it. I have learned to be content in all circumstances. Now, how does he say he has learned to be content in all circumstances? What, what is his conclusion to that verse when, he, when you're reading that section? Let's see, where is it? Um, yeah, there we go, 13. It concludes, he says, not that I speak from want, for I have learned. Now, what does that imply to you? He has learned. I'm in chapter 4, verses 11, 12, and 13 now. I've, I've switched from the mind to the giving part. Okay, that's, and this is something I think is really important for you and I pick up on here. When it comes to the subject of any, any spiritual gift, but this gift that we're speaking of is the, is the idea of giving financially support. He's saying, though, about his own personal support, he has learned to be content in whatever circumstance he's in. And then he gives a rendition of them. And, and he can, once he finishes that, though, he says, both in having abundance and in suffering need, then he says what? 13. 
I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So does that mean he can do all things, or does that mean that in Christ he is able to basically endure in whatever the circumstance is? When we opened this book, did he not also give a scenario similar to this? It didn't have anything to do with giving. It had, had to do with life and death. He said to, to us in chapter 1, verse 20 and 21, about his life, what did he say? That's it. Whether I live or whether I die, it's unto the Lord, right? I am going to be content in every circumstance. Here he's saying about financial needs. Whether I am in want or whether I am in plenty, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That is not a claim to fame on his part. That is a complete resting in the provision, whatever it is. Again, now we are back to this, aren't we? He has a mindset that he has learned. How do you think he learned it? <laughs> a lot of it is experience. Now, are there intellectual learnings that we go through? Yes, we can go to the Word of God. Certainly, we need to have true knowledge, which is what he said here, and real knowledge Right? And real knowledge is based on these kinds of truths these, that are factual, laid out before you intellectually. But part of learning is also experiential. Now, we looked at two men who had experiential lives of learning to, to trust God in all circumstances. We looked at Job and we looked at Joseph. Right? What did you learn about Job's life? Job? He lost everything except his wife, right? My, husband's, my, my husband might say, darn, right? No, I'm just kidding. I'm only kidding. My, but so he lost everything except his wife. And yet at the end of that, we see what, is, what comes out of his mouth. What does he say about that? He worshiped God, and in this he did not sin, right? So this is a man who had experience, and it was, and it was actually kind of a, a progressive thing, too. There were things going on. Do you think there were things that led up to this day, though, that equipped him to be able to go through this severe kind of a testing? Or do you think he just all of a sudden went through this out of the clear blue? It always, Yeah, I think it's a progressive thing, don't you? Little by little we learn. I'm thinking about the spiritual, about the idea, the call to giving, and to being generous with our gift giving. And it's an, an important thing that we learn it. But do you think that all people who come into faith are givers right off the bat? Okay, so how do we help them come to grow in that? To, to find giving is a, is a beneficial thing that really it's, it's an expression of love to God and their relationship with God. Okay, number one would be by our example. How would you, if you, okay, Susan, I don't like to give. I don't, I, I worry about what if I give them something and, it, and, it, and they just waste it. What if they go buy drugs on the street or, or what if they get drunk with it or what if they, you know, or they spend it on in a car when what they should have did was put groceries and paid their bills off. How are you going to help me to learn that giving I, I, that I need to trust in that giving. How would you, pra in practicality, how would you do that? Responsibility to obey, to obey. Okay, now you're back. To, 
She's a rule keeper. <laughs> okay, back to legal. Actually, Susan, you and I think a lot alike. <laughs> However, that wasn't that that wasn't what we. Well, I'm just trying to say if you and I want to help people, we have. Do we not all have churches that desperately need more givers? Do we? And are we? How do we encourage people to actually give? How can we, in a practical way, how can we do that? Okay. I know it isn't, but we're talking about money today, so yes. True, true, but that doesn't pay the bills, and it doesn't help. It wouldn't have helped Paul in his prison, in his imprisonment. He needed, he was needing financial support because he was going to go hungry otherwise. I agree. Okay, so step one would be to teach people to give up their time. Okay, maybe that's a good starting place. And certainly in um, discipleship, when they're babies in Christ, that might be a good first step. Just teach them how to give in other ways, okay? Okay. Okay. So then again, it's a matter of changing the mindset through true knowledge of what the purpose of giving has to do with. Okay. So it could be just instruction, good instruction. How how often do we get good instruction in the in the pulpit about tithing? Pastors don't like to do that subject, and I understand it because they feel like what the church hears from them is, please give me more money, right? And that's really not it. He, if he's a good pastor, he's trying to instruct us in how to ourselves live godly before the Lord. And one of the, one of the subjects that's, that often is kind of taboo is the subject of giving. So for us today, what we are seeing here is Paul says, I learned to be content in all circumstances. How did he learn it? Job, we looked at Job as an example of an experiential life that had hardships in it. Paul himself had, has had hardships, and therefore he says, I've learned to have with, and I've learned to be without, right? Um, so to um, demonstrate it, to start by showing people how to give in other ways besides just finances. What, if you, think of this with me. The last time that you gave money that you really got excited about it, what was that? Yes. Okay, and what I'm hearing from you too is you had ability to actually see where the money was going and exactly what it was going to be used for. And you had a vested interest because your heart was tied to their heart by, God, by God's spirit who had placed it on your heart to do it. So part of giving comes 
from, I think, a practicality of actually seeing the connection. I know that when I, when I get excited about giving, it's when I know exactly what the money's going for, and I get to see the outcome of the money that I have spent. Often, the hardest time for me to give is when. When do you think the hardest time to give is? When you just put money in the offering plate and you really have no idea where it goes or what it specifically it goes to. And often what happens with, in that scenario is sometimes you hear of or see your church spending money on things that you just don't agree with, right? Okay, so how are we going to fix this? How are we going to reconcile the idea that God says we are to give and be generous, which we looked at a ton of verses on this, but also, how are we going to get to a place where we can find great delight in giving to, in an anonymous way, into a plate where we don't know where that money is going to? The real motivator comes when you get to actually know. I, I would personally say to most pastors, if you really want to get people excited about giving, st start registering and showing them what the money's gone to and what the effect was. And if you gave reports on it in that way, your congregation would start being excited. They go, "Oh, we're building this, or we are, we are, we sent these children to do this, and this is what they came back with, and this is how they benefited." That's why you're supposed to have reports from your missionaries when they go places and they come back and they say, "I I did this, and I did this, and I did this, and this is the result." That those are the most exciting times when you want to give because you see something really tangible as a result. Some people, that's almost the only way they're really excited about giving. You know, they're not that excited about dropping it in a plate. But when it comes to the offering plate, how do we get to the place where we are generous and are excited about the idea of giving? I'm trusting that you're working through them. Okay, so now we're back to here. Striving together with one mind for the, what was it said? For the, for the furtherance of the gospel, I think is kind of what it said, right? So we have to retrain our minds about the mission of the church and what, what it is that we are contributing to. Again, we are back to the mind. It starts there. There were a couple of verses, and I'm going to close with this because I know Lois is, she's looking, I know, sorry, she's going, please hurry. Um, there, there is, um, In the, when we looked at the mind, we looked at several verses. One was in Proverbs 4, one is in Proverbs 23, that basically says that we need to be disciplined to monitor what we think because it's by what you think that you live. In other words, in the next, word, in the next one, in Matthew 15, 18 to 20, thoughts precede actions. But you know what actions do? Actions reveal your heart. Right? Yes. That's exactly right. Belief determines behavior. That is exactly what that is. And that's exactly what Matthew 15 says. But thoughts, what you're dwelling on, what you're, 
diligently considering what you're disciplining yourself to believe as truth and know as truth and be reminded of is how many times have I said to you guys you need to go back to your at a glance chart and keep it up to date and ref refresh it each time things get changed a little bit because by refreshing your memory of what the context is you're going to do a better job in in understanding what we're looking at, right? It's the same thing about your, your, Bible, your, your biblical walk with God on the whole. If you ponder on things that are true, on dwell on those things that are pure and right and lovely and, and uh, honorable and so forth, those are the things that are, gonna are going to determine how your mind thinks will then determine how you behave. And if, you're, and if you've done that step first of disciplining your mind, then you are going to strive together with one mind. I wish I had time to tell you about that word strive because there's a, a verse, another verse that, where God says, I will, I will not strive with man forever. And it's the same word. Anyway, it's very good. All right. I, I loved this. And I'm sorry we didn't have more time.